Hello, I'm Dwayne Peters with the Lupus Foundation of America, which is the founder and owner of the open access journal Lupus Science and Medicine that is produced by BMJ. On this podcast, we will be speaking with Dr. Jill Bion, co-editor-in-chief of Lupus Science and Medicine. Dr. Bion is director of the Division of Rheumatology and director of the Lupus Program at the New York University Langong Medical Center in New York City. Our topic is a wrap-up of the 2021 American College of Rheumatology annual scientific meeting that was held November 3rd through the 9th online. Dr. Bion, let's begin by giving our listeners some of your overall observations about this year's ACR meeting. It was called Convergence because many, many people converged upon a virtual platform that was very intense this year. There was a lot of overlapping programs. I think for the first time, the plenaries were competed with other concurrent sessions. I mean, you go in real life, everybody goes into the plenary. There you know, are thousands of people. It's quite an interesting experience. But in this situation, actually, the program was so intense that there were things that happened at the same time as the plenaries. And that was something that I found, frankly, a little bit distracting, except for the fact that you can always go back and listen. So it may have taken away from the live experience in a virtual platform. What does that mean anyway? But I can say that the meeting was richer in content than I've experienced in the past or in a real in-person meeting. That was a difference. The organizing committee played a large role in a lot of the moderation. There were some of the same moderators in many of the sessions, the plenaries and the concurrent. There was a lot of dialogue. A new thing was the community hubs. And these were really interesting opportunities, particularly in the lupus world. Karen Kostenbader and David Eisenberg played a very large role and invited people to come in and discuss different topics. There were quite a bit of controversies, including really how great is Plaquenil? And that was a very enlightening discussion to hear some of Ron Bobenholden's comments, who is, as you know, the co-editor of Lupus Science and Medicine. I thought that was an interesting addition where anybody could really join. There were experts that were there sort of as panelists, but it was a nice open dialogue that maybe was a virtue of virtual that we might not have had as an in-person meeting. So I liked that. The idea of being able to go back to listen to a lecture was excellent. I think Lupus got huge play this year in some of the state of the art lectures. I wasn't necessarily going to give detail, but your question is open-ended to say it would be exciting. And I would advise people to think about going back to two lectures that were really beautifully constructed. And one was by Virginia Pasquale, who talked a lot about interferon and wove that into some of her modules and her new findings with erythrocytes and mitochondrial retention and release. And then Peggy Crow gave a spectacular origins of autoantibodies, really took us back a century and went over the LE cell again, some of the origins, and took us all the way up to, you know, modern transcriptomics. I thought those two lectures for people, especially getting into lupus for the first time, I think these lectures would be very inspiring for them. And they were state of the art. Okay, so let's go ahead and describe a few of the sessions and presentations that you thought might be of particular interest to our Lupus Science and Medicine podcast listeners. I would say for me, this was a good year for lupus plenaries. And as people know, at least in when you're on site, these are the highest selected abstracts. 
They're not the state of art invited lectures. They're actually chosen among the abstracts of which there can be thousands. These are basically saying the top 1%. So in full disclosure, one of the lectures was given by one of our NYU faculty, Ahmed Saxena, who discussed the longer term outcomes of the voclosporin therapy. Now, why was this exciting is because this is a drug that you know is a calcineurin inhibitor, inhibitor of T cells, and also probably has a favorable effect on podocytes. This drug was just recently approved for the treatment of lupus nephritis to be added on to mycophenolate. And that's a pretty exciting development to have a new drug approved. And what this plenary was about, not necessarily getting into the granularity, but that the extension study actually went further. So the safety, which wasn't really the main event of discussion, but the fact of the continued efficacy with voclosporin was shown over the course beyond the original Aurora trials. I think, again, it was a very well-delivered message and probably very encouraging for our patients. The second plenary that I would point out was actually from Canada by Sasha Brunowski. And I think this illustrates the heated discussion of a drug that we use, or at least we suggest to be used in virtually every lupus patient, and that's hydroxychloroquine. And what she presented in the plenary was a safety study in regard to withdrawal of hydroxychloroquine. Now, this is an important question because as our lupus population ages and ages well and healthy, it becomes an interesting issue as to the accumulated retinal toxicity. And now the clinician has to balance perhaps an older patient who's had years and years of the benefits of hydroxychloroquine now facing the potential consequence of retinal toxicity. And so everyone is interested in what would happen if you withdraw hydroxychloroquine. And basically, this was an elegant study, interestingly, also done by Canadians decades ago, showing that in a 45-year-old average age population, in fact, withdrawing hydroxychloroquine was not a good thing and resulted in flares. Built upon that, So everybody's very nervous now with the toxicity in their retina. So Sasha Bernaski presented data from an inception cohort, which really has like 33 sites in the SLIC or the SLIC collaborating clinics. And this was an inception cohort where when people were diagnosed with lupus, they were entered into the cohort and followed for 20 years. So what Sasha did is she used this cohort to again address the question of the safety of withdrawal of hydroxychloroquine. It was not randomized. It was just saying, okay, during the time of this cohort, what people withdrew their hydroxychloroquine or lowered. And those are the two groups she looked at. And the conclusion she came to, the title of the abstract, was that it mimicked the original Esdale study in that patients had more flares who had stopped their medication or reduced them. But the problem with the study was that patients were followed really for cardiovascular events and data were entered once a year. So some of the limitations are, yes, hospitalizations would be captured, but the continuous evaluation over the course of a year was not captured. So how to interpret her results, which are, again, very concerning, are difficult. And she didn't present specifically, and I think where we as lupologists have to begin thinking is about our elderly lupus patients. You know, we have stopped thinking about that, and there's been very little attention to people over 65 or 60 with lupus. And that's a good thing. Now we can concentrate and think about them. That was not discussed. And, you know, whether a formal, true randomized control study in a very select population 
population doing well and older, this becomes an interesting perspective. And I think at the end of Sasha's presentation, there were probably more questions raised than actually answered. And that also came out in the community hub. So that was another plenary that I think people might find interesting. I would say there was some very good basic science done. I mean, obviously, the roots of lupus understanding and eventual treatments stem from understanding the basic biology. And there was some discussion about how we move from inflammation to fibrosis and discussions of TGF-beta and macrophage and fibroblast crosstalk in some animal models and brought up, this was done by a doctor, Matsuaka Yumida, who presented this basically in terms of lupus on nephritis and some of the factors that go from, say, macrophage interaction and things like that, and hypoxia and fibrosis. From our own group, we, McIntosh McCornwell, described some issues of platelet transcriptomics. We very rarely think about the platelets as a big player in lupus, but I think more attention is going to be put on this large cell type. And in fact, looking at the mRNA or the transcriptomics of platelets, are, we did reveal some interesting issues in some of the clinical phenotypes in lupus. We heard a lot from the Accelerated Medicines Partnership, which everyone knows is a very large network to evaluate the transcriptomics and deconstruct the kidney and the synovium, the kidney and lupus and the synovium and RA. And with regard to the lupus part, we did hear some of the newer advances in the transcriptomics, looking at the contribution of, for example, of the tubular cells. We may have not have realized that the actual parenchymal cells of the kidney probably do play a major role in lupus and even in the progression of fibrosis. We heard a little bit about the inflammatory landscape and some preliminary data suggesting that if we looked at ratios of lymphocytes versus myeloid cells, that may have some relevance to the prediction of who may respond to therapy and who may not respond to therapy. So these are insights that are coming in. I think an exciting single abstract, which was an oral presentation, was Andrea Fava, who talked about CD163, which is a macrophage marker. And this was basically something he found in urine proteomics and how this may be an interesting prognostic biomarker and the importance of a liquid biopsy in thinking about lupus nephritis. Joan Merrill presented a very nice paper on the safety of abiraterone at 52 weeks in patients with lupus. This is kind of a novel molecule, and this is a high-affinity cerebellum ligand which promotes proteasomal degradation of transcription factors that are thought to be important in the pathogenesis of lupus. The data looked very interesting at 52 weeks. This was an extra-renal trial. I'd also mention there was a very interesting abstract from the Oklahoma group that has been working hard to try to put together a modular evaluation of cytokines and antibodies that may predict who has early signs of lupus may go on to develop full-blown lupus. And this was a very nice abstract where, again, I believe she leveraged the Department of Defense Serum Repository. And what you do is you have samples before patients develop full-blown disease. And she applied this interesting modular approach. And I thought that talk was excellent. And the person who gave the talk was Melissa Monroe. COVID was, of course, an important topic at this meeting. And I think applying issues of lupus and COVID, whether it's how sick you get from COVID or a very fundamental question that has been very important to us as lupologists is how will our patients do if they get vaccinated? 
And Ismerly and colleagues actually also from NYU and others asked that question and really came up with some very, very important points. People who are on immune suppression, particularly mycophenolate or methotrexate, whether they have lupus or other diseases, may not mount a sufficient vaccine response. And so this has led to guidelines where people who get vaccinated, be it lupus or RA, will stop their medications for a period of time so that they can get good vaccination responses. But in Importantly, in the Ismaili study, flares were evaluated. And I don't know about others listening, but I think a very, very important question I get from lupus patients is, I'm kind of scared to be vaccinated because I'm afraid my lupus might flare. And I think that's a very important question. And it was beautifully answered by evaluating patients after the second dose of the vaccine in those that got the sequential. And the conclusion was flares were very, very, very infrequent. And when they occurred, did not necessitate any kind of major change in therapy. And other groups presented very similar data. And I think that was very reassuring to our lupus patients that they are encouragement of them getting vaccinated. That is really important. And that the fear that receiving the vaccine will cause them to have a lupus flare is unfounded. And I do think that is a major message that was sent out, so to speak, really through the community. There was an interesting concurrent, which asked about you know, how lupus patients thought they did. And I think it is sometimes hard to tell the difference between a sort of physiologic reaction to the flu vaccine versus having a lupus flare. And I think it's important for us as clinicians to reassure our patients that what they may be experiencing is actually no different than someone who did not have lupus. Again, really encouraging our lupus patients to get vaccinated. I think that was a major message throughout the meeting and an important one. Dr. Bayon, I'd like to clarify for our listeners the recommendations regarding when to stop therapy when receiving a COVID vaccination. Was it recommended that people stop their lupus therapy prior to receiving the vaccine? No, not prior. I'm glad that you asked me to clarify. At the time that you're getting your vaccine, if you're on, for example, mycophenolate, we're recommending that you stop it for the week after you get the vaccine and do it again on the second dose and do it again, for example, for booster. For the methotrexate, it's, it's given once a week, as you know, stop it the week after. We're not saying before. I mean, again, these are guidelines and should be accepted as such, but that's pretty much what people are suggesting. Now, I will say, and I'll plug a very important study being done by NIAID right now, I believe it is part of the ACEs where individuals with lupus that are on immune suppressive agents who have not mounted a sufficient response in a pre-screen are then randomized to remain or not remain on their medications for like booster doses. So again, I think, you know, we need more data. I'm only giving you the landscape. And right now, of course, the balance is how sick is that person that you're going to stop that mycophenolate? And I can only give you anecdotal experience. I had a patient with a kidney transplant who had basically no response to the Pfizer vaccine after her second vaccine, who after a lot of discussion with the transplant people and research, et cetera, did receive the booster dose of the Pfizer and she did not stop her medications. She's a transplant patient. So there's a lot of scary issues about that and mounted an excellent response. So I think we can't apply every rule to everybody. And it's important that we balance, you know, when we're giving somebody a drug, how detrimental will it be to stop that drug for a week? I mean, it's all in medicine, as you know, it's always a balance, right? Between the safety, toxicity, and the benefit. Okay. 
So let's move on to some of the other interesting discussions that were conducted during this year's ACR Convergence meeting. I understand that there were several engaging debates during the virtual program. There was a great debate going back, in a sense, to the Vaclusporin. This was a debate by Brad Rovin, who championed Vaclusporin, and Michelle Petrie, who championed the other newly approved drug for lupus nephritis, which, as you know, is belimumab. And I think clinicians are all wondering, gee, how do I deal with these data? Do I begin a patient on double therapy when they have an advanced class of nephritis? Which do I choose? And so this was an exciting debate. I don't think there was a winner. I thought it was adorable that at the end, they actually asked people to vote. But I think Michelle summarized it quite well. And regardless of which drug, and there may be reasons for different patients, formulations of taking so many pills by mouth, a little bit negative to Vaclisporin, giving yourself a sub-Q injection, maybe, you know, a little bit negative for some people for Venlista. But the point that was made, and Michelle had a beautiful slide, and I would encourage people to go back to it, which said, in her opinion, of course, this is not yet the ACR or ULAR guidelines, that actually, if you have an advanced class of nephritis, you know, particularly three or four, in her opinion, right there, for the world to see, she would now initiate one of these two drugs at the time that she initiates mycophenolate. And that's a big change from last year, right? I mean, last year for our first line, most of us were considering mycophenolate for class three and class four. And now by somebody's word, you know, who gets and stands up in front of all the ACR that in fact, maybe we should be rethinking this based on these data we should actually be giving dual therapy right off the bat and adding Vaclisporin or Benlista right away on the diagnosis of a proliferative nephritis. I think that's an interesting change. Will it be fully adopted? We don't know, but it's out there now. This was really a very exciting meeting. This is really important information for our listeners. Thank you for sharing your observations. Are there any final thoughts that you wish to add before we close? Obviously, the beauty of this virtual meeting is you can go back and look at the different lectures. And I love that idea. I mean, it's sort of teaching at home, right? And, you know, maybe instead of watching a movie one night, you're going to go watch the ACR. I attended most of the meeting with a dear friend of mine, Joan Merrill. It was very entertaining and I would encourage it. So I would just say, you know, grab some popcorn, sit by a fire and go back and converge on the ACR and watch some of these lupus presentations. I think you'll find them extremely exciting. Thank you. Our guest has been Dr. Jill Bion, Director of Rheumatology and Director of the Lupus Program at the New York University Langong Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Bion also serves as the co-editor-in-chief of the open access journal Lupus Science and Medicine. It's available for free online at lupus.bmj.com. For the Lupus Foundation of America and BMJ, I'm Dwayne Peters. Thank you for listening.